0: I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. If you've ever felt an urge to sing the praises of endless awe and wonder in small and simple things lying right at our feet and right before our eyes, the play of light on a melting icicle, A child's misspelled words in yellow crayon. Strawberries a friend comes to share, all ripened to perfection. How do these tiny wonders stack up against the awesome big kids on the block? Skyscrapers in Shanghai or Dubai. Blue whales. Those rare arctic auroras or solar eclipses. For a short hour here with me, forget the Eiffel Tower, the Sistine Chapel, the mighty redwoods, Just say no to pyramids, the Acropolis, and moon landings. In this episode of Constant Wonder, we're going to do something only a little unusual for us on this podcast, only slightly different from our usual fare. Today, we're going to bet the farm on a proposition, that wonder is not just occasionally in the palm of your hand. It's right there every day.
1: The juice from the pokeweed berries makes a very beautiful, incredibly beautiful dye Kind of purplish reddish and it makes the most beautiful beautiful kind of paint color those berries it's unreal yeah it'll get all over your hands yeah I know. <laughs> i'm gonna pop one right now it's just such a beautiful color that's bloody really beautiful yeah. it's yeah it's kind of bloody
0: and so you were doing that this morning i was yeah um... this painter using pokeweed berries for pigment is poet and essayist ross Gay. He's unusually chill, to use a current expression of younger people, and I'm chill with Ross Gay's chill because he takes endless delight in stuff devoid of high drama. He looks for nuance along the hidden edges of nuance. Would you hold up your fingers again? I want to see that well, the the dye on your fingers there, it's and gorgeous. that's just from being out uh, outdoors and gathering some.
1: Yeah, I just needed to. Um, I'm working on these paintings with a friend, and I had this very good dye available <laughs> so i wanted to see what it looked like on these paintings by the time you get your pigments ready
0: will you be doing finger painting or will you actually use brushes
1: yeah. <laughs> i was using my fingers i don't, I don't have the patience to <laughs> to take the skin off or the seeds out <laughs> so actual finger painting yeah yeah <laughs>
0: Ross Gay, award-winning author of earlier essay collections titled The Book of Delights and Inciting Joy, has now brought his readers The Book of More Delights. His trademark approach to delight clearly resonated with readers the first time around. I recently found myself super eager to meet and visit with him primarily because he's a fellow who exhibits keen powers of observation that lead to awe, daily practicing what he describes as noticing and paying attention to and thinking about what you love. And much of his approach to life entails a childlike freedom. You thought I was going to say wonder, but let's stick with freedom for a bit. Childhood can be a deep well flowing with memories of free play and wide open horizons. Ross, if I may be so bold, I want to tell you about an experience I had that I think you're going to relate to, judging from something you said in your latest book about delight. In a footnote, you talked about something that really tickled me because I did the same thing as a kid. And it had to do with making forts in the house with quilts and pillows and chairs and tables. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. it just sparked a memory of being a stupid kid once. And if I tell you about (laughs) being a stupid kid, maybe that'll open the door for you to <laughs> do a little confessional too yeah. but um, mm-hmm. so I'm about seven and I'm under the table that's holding the quilt that's making everything dark and I realize I have no light and I desperately want to do something cool <laughs> and and um, it just so happened this was soon after Christmas and my parents had given me one of those reading lamps that has a little clamp mm-hmm. it's kind of like the little Pixar lamp oh, yeah. Yeah, so I yeah. took the clamp and I plugged it in and I <laughs> I put it on the underside of the table, and I got underneath it, and ostensibly I was, it was going to be a you know, a readathon. I was going to go and read there yeah. in my fort, um, but the truth is I didn't really like reading much. I just kind of liked the idea of reading, <laughs> and um, so I, I had to do something, and I, I was lying down underneath it. I looked up. I thought I could spit on that, and the bulb yeah. exploded in my face, you know. I spit on the bulb. I, Whoa, and,
1: powerful spit. Well, I'd li- <laughs> well I, I live <laughs>
0: to tell the tale.
1: Can you
0: identify with a kid who would make a fort and spit on the light bulb?
1: Of course. That just, that just makes perfect sense. And I wouldn't call that kid stupid. I'd call that kid, like, awesome and regular and, <laughs> and like, curious. Because I was actually thinking, oh, this guy read books when he was seven. He's different than me. Like, I. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I could totally see the the pleasure or the sort of excitement or even like kind of mystery of like making a little fort with a lamp in there and then being like, well, all right. <laughs> it's not what I dreamed of exactly. So let me make it what I dream of. Well, you know, the, the kinds
0: of it. things that we do as kids. Our our bridges to other people, I think. Yeah. Where were your forts outside of the house? Because I know you did the blanket fort inside. Mm. But where were your places to go? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, we lived in a in an apartment complex right next to I ninety five. When I say right next to it, like you throw a baseball onto the highway. So I remember being a little kid and building tree forts. You know, there were kind of like these these um, wonderful janky woods around us. <laughs> we would spend a lot of times in the woods, the tree fort was in the woods, but we'd also like find like kind of nooks of like trees. Or I remember, I'll never forget for as long as I lived this, somehow there was a grape growing up kind of through these, um, a couple trees. And it was, it was. It, I mean, it seemed like it was a delicious Concord grape. I was probably seven or eight years old, the age of spitting on light bulbs and such. And I was like, I have been looking for that site my whole life, you know, like the wild grape. It was growing up, this thing up into the trees. And that was a fort that we had. I remember I think we were there for a day or two and then we kind of couldn't find it. It was far enough away from home that we couldn't find, didn't find it again. Or, you know, we had these culverts be under the highway <laughs> that we would kind of, those would kind of be our forts a little bit, you know, yeah. Um, I could go on. Well, the on
0: thing on. about the forts, and the reason I want to talk to you about this kind of a thing, it's not the forts per se. It's the fact that yeah. a kid will go out there and be attentive to a place that nobody else is looking at.
1: Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so um lovely and wonderful. I was just somewhere, I forget where I was, but I remember watching these kids who were without the sort of normal distracting and corralling devices, um, which include often parents. And they were doing such cool stuff. I was just watching them and it was like, yeah, they're just like coming up with cool stuff. I didn't quite understand what they were coming up with, but I knew that they were coming up with these little systems and stuff.
0: Bikes, kids on bikes on streets. Mm-hmm. You know, the free-range kids, you got to do that. Yeah. You went through a lot of bikes, too. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit now about when, you, if you're going to go to a fort and you're going to go find that grapevine, and you are a kid, and maybe there's poke out okay. there. Maybe, maybe you'll be eating mm-hmm. the Concord grapes. You did that on mm-hmm. the bike. Mm-hmm. You went through 14 of them. Why did you go through 14 bikes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that might have been slightly hyperbolic, but um, I went through a bunch of bikes. And one quick shout-out to my dad. We didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. We were kind of broke. That dude would never, never allow me to be without a bike. It was just like, and I wish he he died in two thousand four. I wish I could ask him that. You know him. You know my mom would have her I own reasons, but like, it was such a sweetness that that dude. If when my bike broke because I broke my bikes <laughs> by jumping on you know ramps and everything, um, he it was just like. <sighs> Got to get another bike.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. Bikes were the common currency of childhood for pretty much all of us who grew up in suburbia. We wanted to get away as far away as we could from suburbia. And a bike was access. And and I wonder if we've forgotten as grownups how that access works and and where to find it.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably right. You know, one of my favorite books in the world is by Rebecca Solnit. And it's called uh, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. And in it, she sort of like, you know, tries to help us remember the the psychic or spiritual utility of not knowing where you're going, of get, of like wandering. And you know, your bike kind of helped you wander when you were a kid, you know. And I have a little essay in this new book where I talk about seeing these like little, my buddy calls them wheelie gangs, these little kids and this is right downtown in a, in a little city in, in Pennsylvania. But it's like, you know, they're riding down a busy street <laughs> doing wheelies. And I'm like, man, that is fun. That is so fun. But yeah, I think probably the there's so much um, energy put into never having to be lost and never having to be like wandering around and never having unoccupied, fruitless time. You know, I mean, it's sort of like it's it's a cliche to say it, but like kids and we, I think, are so profoundly scheduled. And and the the notion that a a kid should be really lost, you know, and maybe a bunch of kids should be really lost and have to like figure out how to get somewhere. That would be like, you know, that's that's dangerous parenting.
0: How often do you reach back to that childhood when you had the freedom to do cool stuff?
1: All the time. Yeah, I, I find myself thinking about that all the time. It is such a rich reservoir of like what I think of as like like deep creativity. That kind of abundant possibility, like anything can kind of go together. You know, you're not quite sure. Feels to me like what, in a way, when I'm writing, I'm sort of I'm sort of um, aspiring to that state where like things are really sort of you know vibrant and fragrant and available in a certain kind of way. I find that I'm like often trying to re-remember that that experience of being a, a kid like that, trying to re-remember what that curiosity and lostness actually felt like
0: the ulterior motive I have about talking about grown-ups and kids and bikes and forts and all of this is is because I am really devoted to the idea that as grown-ups we have turned everything into normal stuff. Mm-hmm. We normalize everything. And I want to talk specifically with you about hiking, which you've written about as something kind of special. Even our hiking has been kind of normalized to the point where there're signs and there's destinations and there's achievements yeah. and then you post it on Facebook. Take us on your most recent hike. <laughs> I know you've 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 written about hiking.
1: Yeah, you know, actually, my recent, most recent hike, it was a, it was just a walk. I was returning a uh, rental car. I had been given a reading down in Kentucky, and I was returning a rental car, and I, you know, stopped by the coffee shop, had a coffee, bumped into some friends who I hadn't seen in years actually, and had a lovely conversation, and then I kind of meandered and I made my way past. You know, I've lived in Bloomington, Indiana, where I live for seventeen years. There were a few times where I was like, oh gosh, I, I maybe have never actually walked this block. You know. Um, And I walk a lot. Um, But anyway, I kind of made my way to the bookstore, got a couple books, little books that I needed. You know, I'm writing about um, my relationship to the land and I wanted to pick up Virgil's Eclogues, you know, which are kind of farming poems. And then I, uh, which I've never read. And then I kind of wended around, I can't remember quite where I went, but I went kind of behind this alley, you know, behind the Salvation Army in town. And then I popped out, in this place where I kind of never walk, it was one of the main drags in town, but it's just not where I walk. And I saw these apples growing on what looked like a bush. It looked like a tall shrub. And I was like, whoa, I think those are apples growing up that a shrub. I think probably it was the shrub got, you know, the tree got cut down and this was like what grew, grew back. But so I hopped up there, and in my mind I was rationalizing. I was like, "It was on, it was on someone's yard, you know, in a, in a lawn, you know, very small, like right on the street." But it was theirs, and but I was like, "Oh!" So I jumped up there and got an apple, tiny apple growing in a little cluster on this bush, and it was the most delicious apple ever, you know. And then you know it was funny because I I um, was like, "Okay, there's eight apples on the tree that I can see. I'm just gonna take one." And then but they're very ripe so there's not a lot of time you know <laughs> so I, I came back the next um Last night, actually, and then I confirmed what I thought. I kind of thought that this might be like a building connected to the Salvation Army, so not like a, not like a home, but maybe more like a—I <laughs> don't know. <laughs> Somehow I was rationalizing. I was rationalizing that, I, that those weren't my apples, you know, or whoever got there. I got those apples, and then I was walking home, uh, you know, after I went and got the other apples, saw some friends, one of whom was that same friend that I saw at the coffee shop. I was like, oh, hey, here's some apples, <laughs> You know, in a way, that's like that was one of my last hikes, you know? That was one of my last hikes. You went out
0: with kind of a quasi-destination, but yeah but apples, yeah,
1: were they weren't on really, it. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah I had you, no idea. I think my plan was to walk home from the was to walk home, go to the coffee shop, do a little work at the coffee shop. How much of an outlier do you have to be
0: to give yourself permission? to go on a hike and be distracted by apples and then change all your plans.
1: It's funny, you know, I... (laughs) Just that day, I decided, I was like, I'm not gonna look at the internet today. And then I kind of turned into, I'm not gonna look at the internet for the weekend. I'm just not gonna do it. In part because it feels like a realm, a mostly kind of false realm in which we are profoundly distracted And so, in a way, this is just coming to me now, sort of from our conversation, that the experience of like walking in a way home that I never take and then popping out upon an apple bush uh, is the kind of wandering and lostness that in real life, with the material world, it's the kind of source of proper connection. I mean, like real true connection, Um, the living earth, which has been replaced in large part by the internet. Basically, what I'm saying is that the kind of permission, I think we, we have permission to get distracted. We have permission to sort of wander around. But I feel like a lot of wandering around has been sort of corralled into this wandering that is actually kind of a no space, you know, like a no place wandering. Surfing the net, you know, this kind of um, what I think of is profoundly disconnecting as opposed to this other kind of wandering where you are like paying very close attention. There are landmarks, there are people, you know, people who you might ask how to get where you're going if you're a little bit lost or if the market's still open, are you going to that concert, whatever. So anyway, I don't, I don't feel like an outlier in that way, but I feel like there's a kind of practice that I aspire to or maybe like a refocusing or something, something. And of course, it's all very useful that that kind of observation happened in the midst of being on a fast from the internet.
0: Ross Gay wanders, is that a feature or a bug? he's made it pretty clear that this practice of his isn't just mindlessness. It's not distracted roaming, like digital scrolling or getting lost surfing the internet. His essays about delight and everything adjacent to delight, which by the way include pain or sorrow, which we'll get into. These essays celebrate simple things that are daily and everywhere, including all the innocuous, negligible, forgotten overlooked aspects of life that, seen through his eyes, form an endless array of awe and wonder in miniature. He likes to call these sweetnesses. More from Ross about his practice of finding these sweetnesses in just a moment as our conversation continues. Ross Gay is the unusually mindful poet-writer-wandering author of the Book of Delights, inciting joy and the book of more delights i'm marcus smith and this is constant wonder with your mom you're in a parking lot it's not bikes it's shopping carts <laughs> you're you're hanging on the shopping cart this is this is where you almost go toothless what happened that day
1: yeah i was uh swinging on the you know the little things that keep the carts from spilling out from in front of the store into the parking lot. I was just swinging, having fun. Me and my brother were outside of the... My mom was shopping at the Sears Surplus in Northeast Philadelphia. And, and I was just swinging um, on these things and I had lost my grip and I fell on my face. That's what happened.
0: And the teeth bashed into something.
1: Yeah, the teeth. they am laying on the cement and the, my teeth kind of caved in. They, my lower teeth. They all kind of really caved in. It was a mess. I was completely spaced out. My brother took me in the store. My brother's two years older than me. I was probably like eight. My brother's like ten. And my mom's get out of here. You're gonna bleed on the clothes. It's <laughs> amazing. It's such a good story. And then then I'm just gonna finish the story because my mother, who is, you know, she's I don't know, you know, I sometimes laugh. Like, she grew up on a farm, so she could handle this stuff. But she she took me into the Dunkin' Donuts bathroom, you know. So we walked by all these people. It was a Saturday morning or something. All these people eating donuts and drinking coffee. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) bleeding down my chin. She takes me into the women's bathroom, you know, and she, like, fixes my teeth. She pulls my teeth into place. I don't think she... I don't even know if they called, you know, if they called to be like, hey, you think this is okay? But... I love that story. So, so with your teeth back in place, what happens right then? We gotta go home. I would probably eat soft food for the next day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was it. That was it. It wasn't. It was kind of just like, oh, all right, be careful. Don't slam your face again. You know, it seemed to hurt. <laughs> okay, okay.
0: You're gonna have to help me understand how that kind of a story belongs in the Book of Delights.
1: You know, the connection that I was making there, it was a leap from a connection between, the delight is when I'm seeing this um, this uh, young guy walking by on campus, a kid, you know, a student, probably a 20 year old kid. And I saw that he had, he and his buddy were kind of laughing around and joking. And I saw that he had braces and I felt a deep softness, a deep tenderness for this kid, for like a big kid with braces. And I hadn't really thought of it before. I mean, I had the feeling before, but I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't registered the feeling as something like delight. To be even even more precise, something like tenderness, Um, deep tenderness for the kid. And, you know, I kind of stumble along and think maybe partly it's because boys and their softness is really moving to me. However, that softness sort of communicates itself. And sometimes it communicates itself by, you know, like wanting to make my teeth look nicer, you know? Um, if that's the reason to have the braces, you know, that And anyway, and then I spill over to my mother fixing my teeth. <laughs> so
0: if the book of delights is not just a, a long list of one sweet thing, that's lovely after another kind of going into a candy shop. If it also gets real enough to encompass things like grief and sorrow and setback and, uh, I know in in your book "Inciting Joy," you, you you investigate a lot of this, and I think you'll always investigate it. That there's this, yeah, there's this paradox that we have to live with, and um, to to have your teeth bashed in in the parking lot and be laughing about it today, um, you took some delight
1: in the story at least today. <laughs> yeah, in the telling of the story and thinking of my mother as a kind of superhero. And also, I mean, it's, it's, it's threaded through with everything. I think sometimes there's an, an understandable desire to sort of go to something that's just nice. <laughs> and the delights aren't that. In a way, it's sort of like the practice that I'm interested in, in, you know, wondering about the practice of attending to your delights or attending to what you love in a daily sort of way, um, a more than daily sort of way, the reason it's a practice is because not everything's delightful. The reason it's a practice is because, you know, we're in the midst of dying and the people we love are in the midst of dying. And, you know, if we have bodies, most of us have pain, you know? So it's sort of like the the practice is not at all to negate or, or turn away from, in the least, sorrow or grief um, or suffering. I think the practice is to, in the midst of that, which you might, you know, which is sort of, you know, fundamental part of our existence, the kind of whole and grown existence is to be heartbroken, is to, in the midst of the heartbreak, to be also attending to what we love. And maybe as a way of uh, better co-carrying our heartbreak. One of the things that people so often do when they're delighted, they often, like, bring someone along, you know? And I'm not saying it's always the case, but it's often the case if someone sees a hummingbird and there's someone else around, they're gonna be like, hummingbird, you know? Or if someone, you know, finds the uh, canopy of grapes in the woods, they're not gonna, most often, they're not just gonna be like, oh, I found the canopy of grapes. They're gonna be like, go get Joey and Mikey and Maurice and be like, canopy of grapes, let's hang out. You know, I think that's our, I think that's actually our inclination.
0: You've raised two themes that I want to pursue, and the first one has to do with um, in the midst of the things that are awful and our mortality, we're we're still pursuing those sweet delights. And and, and this comes up in a poem you wrote several years ago, over a decade ago. That's one of the themes. The other is is sort of the uh, communal social aspect of delight, where to be isolated in our delight sometimes seems wrong where we want to pull other people in Mm. so uh first of all Mm -hmm. can we do you have that poem there nearby
1: yeah yeah i can read that it's a poem called sorrow is not my name from my book my second book called bringing the shovel down and it's after the poet gwendolyn brooks um, who has a poem called for the young who want to die and the end of my poem echoes the end of her poem sorrow is not my name No matter the pull toward brink, no matter the florid, deep sleep awaits, there's a time for everything. Look, just this morning, a vulture nodded his red, grizzled head at me, and I looked at him, admiring the sickle of his beak. Then the wind kicked up, and after arranging that good suit of feathers, he up and took off, just like that. And to boot, there are On this planet alone, something like two million naturally occurring sweet things. Some with names so gorgeous as to kick the steel from my knees. Agave, persimmon, stickball, the purple okra I bought for two bucks at the market. Think of that. The long night, the skeleton in the mirror, the man behind me on the bus taking notes. Yeah, yeah. But look. My niece is running through a field, calling my name. My neighbor sings like an angel, and at the end of my block is a basketball court. I remember. My color's green. I'm spring.
0: The purple okra is really going to kick the steel from your knees? Is that... Is that I mean, is that... <laughs> because I want to believe that. I'm serious about this, Ross. I want to believe... Yeah. That something as simple as the purple color in okra, whatever the price, um, might derail my normal life and I could uh, suddenly be in a state of some kind of awe that is immensely valuable.
1: It's my experience for sure that that um, derail is a nice word, Um, that the kind of... Um, that there's a kind of weird abundance of things that are inconceivably beautiful to us. And maybe like right around us too, you know? Uh, Maybe us is that too, to figure out how to attend to that or notice that or um, be willing when someone else notices it to notice it. I feel like that's absolutely the case. So when I when I say the that the purple okra from the guy at the market can kick the steel from my knees, I mean that someone grew this, someone tended this, someone has made this available to me. That in itself is a kind of wonder that to pass it by is a sorrow, which we do all the time. But, you know, to pass by the fact that, you know, people grow things for us to eat. Not to mention, sometimes it looks like nothing you've ever seen, but it's the same stuff. But, you know, that in itself is kind of like, whoa, the earth does that? You know, um, we could do that so often. I mean, and I feel like, you know, in a way that's that's like, a, that's one of the goals to be able to do that. So if this
0: discipline that you have described, this way of being, uh, of, of being attentive, if that's something that we could all do, and if it then also kind of gives us a sense of wanting to share that or pull other people in that social community. I think you've used the, the term rhizomatic connection, and that's, you know, you have to know what roots are on yeah. plants to figure out what that metaphor yeah. is, but it's just it's, it's those yeah. roots that go out and, and connect with other neighboring life. So how does that work for you on a daily basis? Is, I mean, you gave us the story of finding the apples and then and dragging somebody else along to go eat one too.
1: Yeah, it's just like, um, I feel very lucky um, that, you know, I just have friends who are, you know, just yesterday, like, or two days ago, my friend Kate dropped by and she texted and she was like, hey, do you guys need habanero peppers? Because w- these plants are just, you know, over <laughs> overproducing. So brought a bunch of habaneros. She happened to bring a bunch of shishito peppers too, which are wonderful, and was like, could you use these? And a a beautiful bottle of hot sauce that she made from the habaneros. Um, A beautiful walk-in conversation with my friend Dave yesterday, like kind of a day just spent meandering around, you know, to a concert in in our town put on by this little label that's been here for 20 years and that had all these musicians who I've known for like by now over a decade whose music is just astonishingly beautiful. Not like normal beautiful, astonishingly beautiful. Bumping into friends who I haven't seen in a long time, some of whom like have had serious health Scares, you know, health health stuff would go down. Who are doing okay?
0: And in that last comment from Ross Gay about people who've had health scares, then being glad just bumping into them, finding that they're doing okay, there's a door to a pivotal chapter in his life story. Ross is doing okay. There was, however, a very dark season for him, a mental health scare earlier in life when he was far from okay. The delight he takes nowadays in the smallest little nuances of whatever surrounds him. Well, he was generous and transparent enough to talk with me about his time of major crisis when delight seemed far, far away. So somebody just joining maybe or, or dropping in in the middle of a podcast like this and hearing you talk would say, well, this is just an upbeat guy who's just milking the world for all it's got. The truth of the matter is you have a story of kind of coming apart as a younger man. We're talking about anxiety. We're talking about the death of your father. We're talking about a, a critical disorientation. Um, people watching you to make sure you're not going to do, harm yourself. Take us to that difficulty in your earlier
1: life. It's probably a longer story that I haven't, I'm not entirely all the way around, but I just kind of in my early 20s, I just sort of, whatever, you had a, you put it a good way, but stuff just got derailed in a profoundly unpleasant way for years. Um, just deep, you know, kind of what I call emotional crisis, during which I was also like living my life and like, you know, doing stuff, but just was often kind of um, what felt like on an edge. Your father's still alive during this time period? Most of it, yeah. Most of it. Your parents were aware of your need? Eh, Not really. A little bit, but I wasn't a person who was really capable of being like, oh, I need help. Nor really were my folks. Just the idea of therapy was just very far off. That was not at all in our kind of wheelhouse. So
0: were you just left Um, to your own devices to cope? without? uh, Were there friends? I'm, I'm just looking for your support group or whatever.
1: Yeah, there were there were friends, um, but there were certain things that I was incapable of sort of uttering. So, but there were friends who were just there, absolutely. Um, Ross, is it is it painful for you right now to re- remember
0: this time period? Because I can think back on my life and I can talk about it now yeah. and I feel like I've done enough, you know, I'm okay. Uh, I've done some healing, yeah. you know, but if I push it enough yeah. and I go back there, the chasm can open up again, you know. Does that happen to you right now as we're talking about
1: it? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm very curious about it. And I'm curious about it for a number of reasons. And one is that that, that person is not like completely, like I'm very familiar with that person. Whatever the the contours and uh, dimensions of those years of particular trouble, it's very familiar. You know, like sometimes people are, you know, the thing of like, oh, this guy just kind of like looks on the bright side of life. <laughs> <laughs> my, my sort of um, response to that now is two things. One, I don't look on the bright side. I look at everything. You know, I, look on all, I try to look on all the sides. But two, it makes a kind of uh, health sense for me, um, spiritual, psychic, et cetera, health sense for me to be witnessing, to be practicing witnessing the ways that we are being cared for whether we know it or not, to practice connection, to practice witnessing connection in places where previously I had not noticed it. And I feel like the, the kind of profound alienation that I was feeling from myself, a kind of, you know, brokenness, whatever, seems to me a kind of evidence of disconnection A disconnection from the connection of people, you know, the capacity of people to care for one another.
0: So if you today see a a young person going by with braces and then you think about a tenderness that they might be hiding, um, does that capacity of yours to care and and have concern and be attentive to other people like that, does that stem from any of that earlier chapter of of your, your being disconnected?
1: Oh, I hope. I hope. I feel like there's two reasons that I write about things. One is because I have these questions. I have deep and abiding questions, and I want to sort of spend time thinking about them. And the other thing is that I feel like those questions might be useful to other people. There's a kind of personal, and then there's a social desire. And that, to me, is sort of the reason to sort of join my lostness with other people, you know, in a way to sort of like not um, with a, the lovely feeling that I've experienced when people were like, "understood what I was going through," or like, "Oh, hey, maybe you want to read this book," without saying a whole lot more.
0: As this middle segment of our episode with Ross Gay wraps up, you're about to hear a very brief but unambiguous reference to suicide. It's best to advise you, please listen with care. A proper understanding of Ross's take on delight does not bracket off the bitter or painful or disturbing realities of human experience. The darkest season in his life entailed frequent panic attacks and vomiting, relentless anxiety, a feeling that he couldn't confide in anybody, and when he felt like he wouldn't make it through, there came a point when he made a plea to his brother for help now might be just the right time to point once again to Ross's poem inspired by the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, To the Young Who Want to Die, which begins with these words, Sit down, inhale, exhale. The gun will wait. Years later, when Ross was okay, he responded to the Brooks poem with his own redemptive lines. Sorrow is not my name, No matter the pull toward the brink, My color's green, I'm spring. Our guest, Ross Gay, is author of essay collections titled, The Book of Delights, Inciting Joy, and recently, The Book of More Delights. I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. More coming up from Ross Gay about the good kind of lostness and wandering, with the delights and sweetnesses that anchor him, and specifically the wonder of people, neighbors, friends, and community. I asked Ross Gay about finding delight while throwing heart and soul into gardening at a community orchard where he lives in Bloomington, Indiana.
1: That's actually a beautiful example, of this community orchard that my neighbor, i point in right now. Uh, across the street to where my neighbor, Amy, lives, um, who just a few days ago dropped off a bunch of pears. Lucky, you know, like how nice. Um, Bloomington Community Orchard is is her brainchild. I became aware of it because my buddy Dave, who I was walking around with yesterday, handed me the newspaper and showed me the article. The newspaper. (laughs) I didn't read the local newspaper. He handed it to me when we were sitting around talking about poems. And so I went to the meeting. And then I just became sort of involved with this thing. And after being involved with this thing for a while, I was like, oh, this is an example of the thing that that we kind of are dreaming of. This is one iteration of the thing that we're dreaming of, you know.
0: Which is what?
1: Well, I think a lot of people who maybe know each other, but maybe don't, figuring out how to care for one another. Plant trees together. All right, let's plant an orchard. You know, one of the things that was so moving to me about that from the start, because I was a new gardener when I started chipping in on that project, is that I was planting things that would provide some sweetness for people I never knew, I would never know. Like there's something to me at that time, being a new gardener was just so magical, was so moving to plant a tree that someone down the road, maybe isn't even born yet, is gonna eat fruit from, with a bunch of other people who, even if I don't know them well, We've sort of collaborated on this thing that is profound.
0: How much of your own sweat has gone into that community orchard?
1: Oh, a lot. The first couple of years, it was just nonstop. We were, we were turning compost <laughs> constantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good bit. I've been, I've pulled away from it. Um, I haven't been as involved in the last handful of years, but but it's doing good. You know, I get over there, and um, it's doing pretty good.
0: You know, it's it's one thing to look at a garden or an orchard or a life form and see it in terms of it is serviceable to human community. It's another thing just yeah. to take delight in the very existence of something like a fig, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I love the idea of taking the, the beginnings of life— and maybe their seeds or maybe they're starts. Maybe it's some kind of a grafting thing going on. But you get a little chunk of life and you transport it to a new location and it takes root and it thrives. And then you have more life. And, of course, I'm thinking yeah. about the fig story that, that made its way somehow from one part yeah. of the country to the other.
1: Yeah. One of my first gardening teachers was actually Mr. Lau, who is my buddy Jay's dad. When we were growing up, he was a very serious gardener, beautiful garden, had like a lot of fruit trees and grew like Asian pears and peaches and they brought some, you know, plums and stuff. and But they had figs. And I had never had a fresh fig until one morning, I think probably I was in college, might've been grad school and I was over there hanging out. There was a colander of figs on the table and Jay gave me one and I had one and I lost I lost it it was so delicious. You know, I had eaten fig newts. <laughs> that was, anyway, that garden became sort of, um, sort of like this sacred place to me, you know, like I, you know, Mr. Lau would be out there like, doing his exercises, but he'd also be like, you know, tending to the garden, like cleaning out the pond or whatever, um, harvesting food. And when I moved out here to Bloomington, I started gardening and I, right around that time, the Laus were getting ready to move. Um, and I, and I, being like a baby gardener, I was like, what's going to happen to your trees? I got to bring your trees to my place. <laughs> they were like, you know, 15-year-old trees. And Mr. Lau was, he was like, well, I guess if you got like a backhoe and a big truck, you could you could do it. <laughs> but anyway, it's what he said, but it'd be easy just to take some cuttings of this fig. Um, so he just, um, you know, old hat, he's a real, you know, real gardener, and he just, took out a pickaxe and, you know, hacked out a bunch of branches, which to me, I was like, whoa, whoa what do you doing? Then <laughs> he coached me up, keep them in buckets of water. He gave me the buckets of water, I remember. Um, I think he uh, gave me some goji berries that day too. And those figs became figs that I potted up, I kind of tended to, gave a handful of them out to friends around here, and then they are in the orchard. Those same figs are in the orchard today. So that's just a beautiful story to me. That Mr. Lau's orchards have sort of things uh, have sort of spread around this area and probably on.
0: You've described wonder as having a fat and gooey heart, and the context mm. in which you use that phrase, you say that wonder is the opposite of dollery.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Like the more we know, the less capacity we have for wonder. You know. If you if you know everything about a dandelion, you'll never be able to look more closely and be flummoxed by a dandelion. And we can go on and on and on. All of this, this sort of sureness or um, having you know our ideas fixed and nailed down, absolutely sort of prohibit us from being able to be disturbed, actually upset, turned upside down. Which wonder I think actually does. And I say upset. I don't I don't mean in a bad way. I mean tipped over. You know:
0: When a poet attributes a fat and gooey heart to wonder and then also says that wonder can turn things upside down, disturb us, but not in a bad way, I kind of sense that he's offering food for thought that's pretty rich, and I mean beyond the simple sweetness and delight and richness of eating a fresh, ripe fig. His stories are often much more surprising than just, hey, guys, figs are yummy. I'll give you an example. His never-quite-explained tale of going to a laundromat that had a tree out in front with a garrulous woman who seemed to be up in its branches, a woman who for heaven only knows what reason, had nonstop reasons for talking to just about every single passerby. I just had to ask him about that day and the delight it brought him. Some people are off the beaten path so far that they're up in a tree, and you found this lady who was just hanging out in the
1: tree. What was she doing up there? Well, it was from the perspective where I'm sitting. I was having a coffee while doing my laundry, laundry um, and I could see I could see a woman talking to these people passing by, but I couldn't see her. I, I think, in fact, she was probably on a porch um, beyond the tree. But from where I was looking, my perspective, it looked like she was. Uh, giving advice when I could tell the way she was talking that she was giving advice and stuff from the tree. So, yeah, that's how that lady got up there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So these are just complete strangers and you just happened to be at the laundromat that day.
1: Total strangers. And I just got to overhear and overwatch this interaction, which included this woman just like saying how beautiful this baby was and going in to her tree and finding some hair ties and throwing, tossing hair ties down to the to the dad i guess uh, the guy who was pushing this little kid in the stroller and then eventually because i'm sitting there long enough i realize, oh she talks to everyone who goes by <laughs> and probably anyone who needed hair ties she was going to throw them to or if you needed some baby powder or if you needed some socks you know <laughs> that was her role that was her role You know, there
0: was one day at church that somebody came up to my mother and and said, Carolyn, do you happen to have a size 34 knitting needle? And my mother (laughs) reaches into a bag and pulls one out. So is that what you're talking about? That's it.
1: That's it. That's it. So
0: you're at the laundromat and then um,
1: somebody else takes your laundry that day too? Oh yeah, that's right. I'm there doing my clothes and I go to pull them out, throw them in the dryer. And the woman who's running the laundromat that day. Oh, no. She said, did you see that that old woman who was here? She was right next to you. She must have. So she goes about trying to find my laundry and like get my phone number to call me for when this woman comes back with my <laughs> quite big clothes, you know? So it's just like one of those moments in the laundromat where you're sort of like, um, I like laundromats very much, but it's one of those moments where you're sort of like, you need help. You need help. And people are, like, trying to help you. It's like, oh, yeah, let me, you know, maybe I need just a little bit extra help today, you know. Let me try to help you.
0: I love the help, but I'm also very curious about why you would love laundromats. What's what's going on there for you?
1: I don't know. I mean, I love places where all kinds of people hang out. I love post offices for that reason. Laundromats are a little bit different than that. Um, but it does feel like... Um, yeah, like a nice kind of mix of folks coming to laundromats. I just really love folding my clothes outside of my house. I, I love folding my clothes in my house too, but I, but there's something so pleasant about like doing the whole thing and having them in bags and yeah. Really. <laughs> well,
0: you're right on brand for any all of this that you're talking about because um, you depict for your readers an endless array of beautiful moments with simple things and simple places and simple circumstances. And that, that brings me to this passage that I'd love to hear from you on, on page 60.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this is at the end of uh, when me and the laundromat attendant are kind of trying to figure it out. Lord, I believe in almost nothing anymore except these fleeting sweetnesses. These dime a dozen precious sweetnesses, these sweetnesses that seemed to me the organizing fact of our lives, or maybe more accurately, the reasons to stay alive. These people in trees and on porches and in laundromats taking my phone number for when my clothes came back. And while I was giving the attendant my number, a jacked older woman in tank top and jeans standing guard next to her washer, good idea, and reading her phone, who I'd noticed glancing up periodically at our conversation. Called out, looking down still at her phone, but smiling. That's life in the laundromat.
0: So here's a problem I have. I want to present you with a problem. (laughs) And the problem is... We've got this show called Constant Wonder and it's super easy to jump to the conclusion that we are all about the scenic grandeur of taking a nice trip to the Tetons and saying, wow, or going to the Grand Canyon and saying, wow, Mm. or having one of those Mm. rare Mm. epiphanies, maybe Mm. some kind of mystical experience where it's life changing and transformative and all of that. And so getting
1: to know you. You are preaching a different gospel, in a way. I think people are probably interested in, you know, that book of delights, which is basically like a book of essays that I wrote every day for a year, more or less, about something that delighted me. The scale is almost necessarily sort of um, small. Because it's daily, I haven't quite thought this through, but there might be something about the scale of delight itself that It could be the sound of the dog, you know, barking, the dog that you love barking three doors down, you know, that might like sort of delight you. Or it might be the sound of the person who walks that dog, talking to that dog about how pretty the flowers are. That's a smaller scale than like seeing the Grand Canyon or something. It's like, there's nothing epic about it. But I do find that people connect to that.
0: And yet there's something that goes beyond just saying, yeah, I can identify, I can relate, I like dogs too where's the wonder uh, beyond reading your book and delighting about your delights and saying, yeah, that resonates?
1: One of the things that wonder or awe maybe, well, here, I'll put it this way, the other way. One of the things that our lostness, our sort of mutual lostness, maybe allows us to realize is the kind of mutuality of the lostness. There are fathoms that we will never get to, you know, And that, to me, that kind of lostness, another word for which is need, really, can, I feel like, when we sort of honor it and pay attention to it and celebrate it, incline us actually to reach toward one another to help each other in the lostness. I'm picturing a kind of raft, actually, by holding each other through the lostness, through the sorrow, through the grief, through the confusion. Again, you know, to, to come back to that question of like know-it-allery, know-it-allery makes us unneeding. It closes down our need for each other. But wonder, lostness, etc., makes explicit our need for one another. And it probably makes explicit the pleasures and the beauties of actually reaching toward one another. Yeah.
0: Thanks to Ross Gay for joining us in conversation for this episode of Constant Wonder. Ross Gay is author of essay collections titled The Book of Delights, Inciting Joy, and recently The Book of More Delights. Production assistance for this episode came from Teneri Taylor and Lily Jensen. Sound design was by James Call. Constant Wonder is the 2023 gold winner of the Signal Award in the category for Religion and Spirituality. And you can help us get word out about this podcast by leaving a review at a stellar rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.